0: Well, hey, New City, glad to be with you again this morning and really glad, as we shared a little bit ago, that in two weeks from today, we'll also be gathering again in person here at New City Church. As I begin this morning, I want to share with you a story that took place in the second year of Christina and I's marriage. It was either Christmas or her birthday, so I was going to buy her a gift, and we hardly had any money at that time. Our budget was really tight, and so I thought I could try to buy her one semi-okay gift, or I could buy her multiple smaller gifts. And who doesn't want to open as many presents as possible? And so I opted with the uh, cheaper but multiple gift route. I went to Hobby Lobby one day because half the store is like always 50% off. And I bought her three things. I bought her a red candle that has the word love on it because she likes candles. I bought her what I have affectionately referred to now as a vegetable medley, which was just a vegetable base that has a, a vase that has vegetables in it and is meant to be a decoration. And then I bought her some picture frames or something like that, and I remember when she open these presents, that she tried to look and sound very excited, but she was not that excited. Come to find out, she had to put the red love candle in our bedroom because she told me you can't put a red candle that with the word love on it in the living room. That would be weird. Our, our, veg, our vegetable medley that I was so proud of, she eventually told me I had to get rid of it because it was so ugly that she no longer wanted it. And so I, looking back at the at that time, I clearly did not make the best decisions in terms of what gifts I should have bought Christina. Now, I share that story because although it's fun and maybe an innocent story, we're looking at this idea this morning as we continue our series in the Seven Churches of Revelation as we look at the church of Pergamum that they're faithful and they're following Jesus but they've got some small things that they need to deal with. And the question is, well, what do we do with those smaller things or those smaller sins in our life? Do they matter or how much do they matter? Of course, the, maybe the Jesus answer is that all sins matter and we need to care about it. But practically speaking, when you and I look at things in our life that maybe uh, are not the best, but we kind of compare it to all the really good things that we do, how are we supposed to view uh, maybe these smaller sins? What are we actually supposed to do with them? That's what we'll be looking at this morning. And so we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12. We are in week three of our Seven Churches of Revelation series. We are looking this morning at the church of Pergamum. Again, all of these seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to uh, are, are take place or are located in what is now modern-day Western Turkey. And uh, to give you some background on the church of Pergamum, of, of who John is writing to and kind of the situation they face, here are some things you might find interesting. Um, it was the home of the second largest library in the world at that time, a second to the library in Alexandria in Egypt, it had some 200,000 volumes in it, which was significant especially in the first century uh, and in fact the word parchment is derived from the word Pergamum and it was it's a written writing material that pioneered or began to be used in Pergamum uh, also because Pergamum was not a major port city uh, nor was it on a major trade route it was not a a, uh, a, a cultural center um, but rather it was more of I'm sorry it wasn't it wasn't a center of commerce but it was more of a cultural center in other words you would only go to Pergamum if you meant to go there. Like, you would have never really passed by there for no reason. It's not maybe the perfect analogy, but think of like a small town in the middle of nowhere. You only go there uh, if you're going there on purpose. And so because it's kind of uh, not a normal place that people travel to, uh, that you could kind of think of maybe in our modern day terms, they might have a little bit of their own accent. They might have their own local charm because it's just kind of their own place. This is what Pergamum was like. It was more of a center of culture because it was kind of on its own In that sense. Um, That being said, it was an important religious center. uh, And so they did have a lot of visitors for that reason. They had big temples uh, to Zeus, to Dionysus, and to Athene, um, among others. And so it was a very well known cultural center when it comes to religion. Uh, And then finally, uh, Ephesus in week one faced false teaching, Smyrna, week two, as we looked at last week, faced persecution, and Pergamum is going to be facing both. And so that being said, here's what it says, Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says, Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. So the angel t- is essentially the spirit of the church. John through Jesus is, or Jesus through John, rather, is saying, "This is what I want to say to the church of Pergamum." And, and like every every uh, reference in in each of these seven letters to the churches, uh, John is referencing one of the descriptions that he describes Jesus as in Revelation chapter one. And so in Revelation chapter one, he describes seeing Jesus as having a sharp double edged sword coming from his mouth. And so he's again saying that this uh, this revelation is coming from Jesus now. What is significant is that is John for each of these seven churches is not kind of randomly picking a description of Jesus and just kind of throwing it in. Each description that he uses has a particular significance to each church. And so, for example, what does a sharp double-edged sword have to do with Pergamum? What What is significant about Pergamum is that the proconsul of the Roman province of Asia. Was in Pergamum, so that the Asian part of the Roman Empire, uh, if you had a big legal dispute or if you had somebody who was facing death, uh, what this means is that the power of Rome was held in Pergamum, and that the the, the people, that the government in Pergamum could issue a uh, death, and it could issue kind of the big governing laws, and so instead of having to travel all the way to Rome uh, for every kind of big dispute, you could actually go to Pergamum, and so what Jesus is doing here is that he's reminding the believers in Pergamum that he, not the Roman government, ultimately has the power of life and death. That he, not the Roman government, is the one that ultimately is in control and ultimately has the power of the sword, which would be an encouragement to them. And so Jesus is wanting them to know this. It says this in verse 13. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you were holding on to my name, and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lived. So again, they're facing intense persecution, particularly in this area, and they're remaining Faithful. Now, Satan's throne. uh, We don't exactly know how the original readers would have took it, but it could have been uh, one of one of these two things. Satan's throne could be a reference to a local local temple to a false god, because there again there are a lot of temples, so there could have been a particularly uh, dark or evil temple where evil practices uh, took place, or perhaps more likely, it could be the reference to the fact that Pergamum was one of the first cities in the Roman Empire uh, to begin to worship the Roman Empire emperor as a deity. Most of Roman history up until this point viewed the Roman emperor not as a god, but as someone maybe favored by the gods. And then after they died, they could potentially become a god. Well, Pergamum and some other places were the kind of the forerunners to start worshiping the living emperor as a god. And not only that, they required all of their citizens in their area to also bow down and worship the emperor, which is different than the other religions that were going on. You could could kind of essentially pick and choose who you wanted to to worship and who you wanted to follow, but it was a requirement that everybody bowed down and worshiped the emperor. And so Jesus is commending them for staying faithful to his name, even in the midst of, 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 of being kind of told they have to worship God. Now, this is also significant because their cultural context is a little bit different than ours as we've been talking about these past few weeks. For us, it may seem simple. Clearly, you don't worship false gods. But in the first century, everything that you did in your life was all your civic duties, all of your hobbies, all of the work that you do were were kind of tied and were flowing in and out of religious life. So uh, for example, uh, trade guilds were a very big thing. If you had a certain uh, talent or job description uh, that you follow, a certain trade that you were a part of, you would have joined a trade guild. Uh, these were places where you would meet once or twice a month for meals. You would celebrate birthdays. Uh, through these guilds, uh, you, they would do your funerals and celebrate uh, marriages. They would be kind of, your center of your life was kind of thrown through this trade guild, and all trade guilds, like everything else in Roman culture, would begin with idol worship, a sacrifice to a god. Uh, they would eat together, but they would bless their worship or where they would bless their meals as an offering to the God. And so by participating in that meal, you are essentially saying that you agree with and you believe in the, the deities that they are worshiping. And so it was really hard and significant. It had massive ramifications for you to withdraw from these things, everyday ordinary life, because you didn't want to worship any gods. In other words, this made Christians an easy target. Because, at best, they were viewed as essentially unpatriotic, like they're they're not down with what we're trying to do in our culture. And at worst, they were viewed as anarchists, as people thought that, man, they are actively trying to subvert and change the customs and laws of our day because they're not participating. What we're doing. And so this was very difficult uh, for Christians. And so again, Antipas is an example that they give us, was martyred in 92 AD, which at most would have been maybe two or three years before John wrote this letter. As an example, as someone who said, I'm not going to bow down, uh, people did not like that, and he was ultimately killed. Uh, Tradition has it that he was roasted alive in a brazen bull, which was basically a bronze or a metal bull. Uh, You can think of like a big bull. They would put somebody kind of in the stomach of the bull. They would close up the bull. Under the bull, they would light a fire where you would burn alive, and they would essentially have a tube going from the stomach from where you were out through the bull's mouth, and it would sound like a bull was kind of yelling or screaming, which was actually the person being burned alive. And this is what had happened to Antipas. And so as you can imagine, this was a pretty a tragic and horrific thing. And what he's saying there is, I, in, all, in all this persecution, you're still remaining faithful, which is good. But yet, here comes the rebuke. Here's what some of them are not doing so well. Verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. "...you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. He's referencing here the story of the Old Testament story of Balaam. If you're familiar with it at all, this is the story that involves the talking donkey. And what basically happened is that this is found in the book of Numbers. The Israelites are at this point traveling through the wilderness, but they're powerful and they're mighty in number. And so Balak is the king of the Moabites, sees the Israelites and is somewhat threatened by them. And so he summons Balaam to come to him and essentially asks Balaam to ask God to place a curse over the Israelites. Well, long story short, uh, Balaam says, okay, I will go to God before you, but I will only do what God says. And so God, uh, again, uh, understandably, uh, does not uh, curse the Israelites. And so Balak asks again and asks a third time, each time kind of upping the ante of what he will give Balaam if he would pronounce a curse over the Israelites. And God eventually not only doesn't pronounce a curse over the Israelites, but then begins to pronounce blessings. And so Balak is very upset about this. And so as Balaam is leaving Balak's presence, probably for the last time, he does tell this to Balak. He says that if you, here's one way that you can actually get Israel to forfeit God's protection over them. If you can entice them to worship idols which is what ba- uh, Moa or sorry what is what Balak actually ends up doing he begins to intermingle with the Israelites they begin to marry one another and they eventually again as it says begin to worship false gods begin to eat meat sacrificed to idols and begin to commit sexual immorality and so this is the problem that's happening here verse 15 it says this in the same way you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so like the Balaam story, there were some believers who are now being enticed and are now involved in similar practices. Now we're not exactly sure what the Nicolaitans taught, but their practices resulted in the uh, faithful Christians doing things that go explicit, went explicitly against what God would want them to do. And now to be fair, again, we could look at this and say, okay, so they're committing sexual immorality in a pretty open stance. They're eating meat, sacrifice to idols. They're participating in these things that are clearly meant to be a worshipful acts of false gods. Don't they know what they're doing? How could they do that? We have to be fair and understand that the false teachings that they were following is very similar to what we experience today. It's not as if they had people coming in and saying, deny Jesus and go do these things. What is happening is that they would have people who were coming in and were essentially maybe uh, 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 suggesting improved versions of following God. They would perhaps say things like, uh, you need to have a more modern approach of what does it look like to honor and follow Jesus. In other words, you, you, you would have people that were not overtly trying to pull people away from God, but they were saying things like, what's wrong with doing X? Uh, if, if he can help you better relate to other people. Or surely God would understand, again, if you're facing a financial difficulty, to do things like worship false gods to help improve your financial state because life is really hard for you. Essentially, what this would be was it would be a temptation to compromise. It's not that people were coming in and blatantly saying, do these things and reject God. They had people coming in and saying, well, you can still do these things and be faithful and follow God. In other words, they were facing the temptation to compromise, and what Jesus is saying is that this cannot be tolerated. If we were to put uh, the, what maybe what, what John through Jesus is saying here, is, as I kind of would sum it up this way, that faithfulness is determined by God, not culture. Faithfulness is determined by God and not culture. And so although just like they had things in their day, we have things in our day that our culture does, that it just seems normal, that it seems like everybody else is doing it. What's the big deal? He is reminding them, and it is a reminder to us that faithfulness, honoring God and loving people is a standard that God sets. And if there are things that our culture does that are dishonoring to God and dishonoring to others, following in those things can result to unfaithfulness. It kind of makes me think of like, when, when Christine and I sometimes are going places and there's going to be a lot of kids there, we will prep our children, essentially our really just our five-year-old, because our two-year-old, he doesn't know what's going on anyway. But we'll say things to Finley like, hey, we're going to be going to this place. There's going to be a lot of kids there, but remember... We still expect you to use your manners. We still expect you to be kind. Like, here are our expectations of what we want you to do, regardless of what other children are doing or how they're behaving. Here is how we are going to operate. In other words, we're not going to compare ourselves to other people and say, well, since they're doing this, it's okay if we do this too. Now, here's our standard, and we're going to try to live up to it. Again, following Jesus and being faithful to God is determined, or faithfulness is determined by God and not our culture. Even though we could get away with doing things in our culture like they can, it doesn't mean it's actually, they're actually being faithful. In James chapter 1, James puts it this way in verses 13 through 15. He says this, knowing that knowing that faithfulness is determined by God and not culture, he says this, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so, going back to this idea of, of how do we view uh, maybe smaller sins, even if like we're doing good in majority area of our life, but we just have a few issues, and how we need to face them. What we need to remember is that when we when we face sin and struggle and weakness in our life, we never go from one or sorry, sorry from zero to hundred, right? You know this from personal experience. If you have certain sin, weaknesses, or struggles, or ongoing sin patterns in your life. They didn't start out that way. Or you know from maybe uh, relationships and the stories of others, of people who have, have gone down a route that they might not want to have gone down. In the beginning, they didn't think they would end up here. In other words, in other words we, we don't go from zero to 100. We go from zero to one, and then one to five, and then five to 20. And then lo and behold, at some point, our life is not at all what we would have wanted because what had happened is this. And what we need to understand is this, that small compromises lead to big sins. Small compromises lead to big sins, which means that even if we say, hey, I'm killing it over here, I'm crushing it over here, I'm faithful over here, we still ought to pay attention and not excuse the things that might be dishonoring to God and dishonoring to others. Small compromises Lead to big sins, and when I say big sins, I don't just necessarily mean like the quality of them. It could also just mean the quantity. Big sins could could refer to man blowing it big time, or it could refer to just the quantity. That is, say, there's this repeated pattern of something that you know is dishonoring to God, and know it is not loving other people. It's not good. It's not what God has for you, and it happens time and time again because. We've made small compromises that we've excused at the beginning. It's not just the quality of our sins, but it also could be in reference to the quantity. You can think of it like this. When it comes to flying uh, and aviation, when you fly somewhere, you want to make sure that you know where you're going to land. You want to make sure everything's on target and you're leaving, you know, this destination and you're going to arrive exactly where you're wanting to go. Now, what it's that's significant is because when it, when it comes to flying one degree, being one degree off course one small degree off course that seems like nothing from the place that you're taking off from can actually ultimately end up for big problems for you. So for example, being just one degree off course means you miss your target of where you want to land by 92 feet for every mile that you fly. Now, that means if you only fly a couple of miles, you might only be 100 feet off of where you wanted to go. Not a big deal, but as we know, nobody flies just for a couple of miles. And so what this ultimately means is that every 60 miles you fly, if you are just one degree off your target, you will end up one mile away from where you ultimately want to land. So if you multiply that out, the farther you go, the bigger problem this runs into. Ultimately, for example, if you were to fly from New York City to Los Angeles and just be one degree off target, when you land, you will be 40 miles into the Pacific Ocean. In other words, you won't be flying again. One degree, being off by one small degree, one small compromise that you might not even realize at the time can lead you to a whole host of issues. And so what is happening here is is Jesus, through John, is saying that you face persecution and you're trying to be faithful, but you have some issues that you need to deal with, otherwise it will lead to much bigger problems for you. In fact, he says this in verse 16, chapter 2. Here's what they need, then need to do. It says, So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword, of my mouth Again, his command is to repent, otherwise Christ will fight against them. The sword of his mouth, he's speaking, he's referencing to the words that God speaks because his words are powerful. Uh, he's not referencing here to the second coming of Christ. He's refer- referencing literally to this church. We're not exactly sure what it would look like or how providentially it would go about, but he is saying that if you do not repent and turn from these ways, this, this body of believers will cease to exist. And so what he's saying here is that how we live and how we operate matters because it has consequences for our life. I think of it like this. Uh, I have a pristine driving record. Now, you could say it's because I'm just a really great driver and I'm always trying to make sure I don't do anything wrong. I've never got a speeding ticket, never been in an accident. But the reason that this has never happened is because my dad essentially put the fear of God into me when I was 16 years old and, and to the same degree said, hey, if you get in trouble, you no longer will be able to drive. For example, let me read to you, or let me show you on your screen. Here's an email that we found recently as we were cleaning some stuff out that my dad sent to me when I was 16 years old that sums up why I have no issue, no issue, um, nothing on my driving record that would get me in trouble. I'll read this to you because I know it might be hard to see on your screen. Here's what he said. He says Dylan your 6 month car insurance premium was $750 that is about $125 a month or $4 a day the good news is that you have a pristine driving record no accidents no tickets no running red lights no speeding super keep it up drive paranoid turn off the music in busy or unfamiliar locations if you get any driving tickets or accidents the insurance will go to about $2000 for 6 months and you have to pay the difference or you can take a bike Good driving, dad. Now, why do I share that? Because basically what he was saying is this, that sin has real consequences. Sin has real consequences. Yes, my dad would still love me. Yes, my dad would forgive me. But if I choose to make a unwise decision, I will have real life consequences that I would have to deal with, right? I would no longer be able to drive my car. And what Jesus is getting to here is that it's not that your sins won't be forgiven, but you and I do have to deal with our consequences, right? Not that my dad would not have forgiven me and still loved me any less if I had gotten a speeding ticket or gotten an accident, but I would have to face the consequences of my actions, that our sins have real life decisions here in this life, even if we're forgiven by God. Now, that being said, this is what makes the gospel so amazing. That yes, in this life, if we make sinful and wrong decisions, then there will often be consequences that we have to face. The gospel is that you ultimately do not have to face what you really deserve. The gospel is that you and I are not awesome, that you and I have blown it, which we all know to be true, and instead of incurring the wrath and the internal condemnation of God that we deserve for turning away from him, God sends Jesus to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so that although sin has real earthly consequences, that we ought to uh, take heed to and understand, ultimately the gospel is that you are forgiven from the biggest consequence that you deserve which is condemnation and rejection from God himself. The gospel is that Jesus came into time in the form of a man, that the perfect death that we, you and I, could not live, cannot live, do not live, died the death that we deserve so that anybody who would trust and repent and follow in Jesus would receive the grace and mercy of God, not because of us, because of him. The gospel is that although our decisions now have real earthly consequences that we ought to care about, the gospel is that the biggest consequence of your sin and of my sin, we don't have to face. And it's not because God doesn't care, but it's because he actively and proactively proactively did something about it and offers us a way to receive grace and mercy, not because of us, because of him. The gospel is not about what you have done and how awesome you are. The gospel is what God has done for you and how amazing he is. That he does not need us for anything, that he does not want anything from us, that he did all of this for us in sending Jesus. And so the call to repent is not to repent and turn from our sinful ways to get something from God, to make us love us more, but so that we can more fully experience the life that God wants for for us because although he is a gracious and mercy merciful god he is a just god and he will condemn and one day right every wrong and the question is are our wrongs going to be righted through the grace and mercy that Jesus displayed for us or are they going to be righted by us experiencing the rejection from god that we all deserve The choice is what are we going to do with Jesus because the gospel is more beautiful the more we understand that we deserve the rejection and condemnation from God, but God in his love and grace towards us has given us another way. And so he's telling them to repent from their wrong and evil ways and turn to Jesus to receive the life and grace that he has for them. And so he concludes by saying this in verse 17. He says, let anyone who hears... Or sorry, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. So to the ones that do repent and trust and believe and follow Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. He's saying faithful believers will be conquerors, will experience the inheritance that Christ has for those in his kingdom. And it gives us a description of a, of a hidden manna and a white stone. Hidden manna basically meaning the bread of life that God gives us. And the white stone, it could be a number of things that he's referencing. I'll just explain what two of them likely might have been and what they might likely have understood by that. A white stone in this time period was given to victors at games if they performed well or if they won. They, you would receive a white stone that would give you entrance to certain banquets, right? So you would be allowed to come in based off of your Achievements, or two, it could be in reference to a legal practice where jurors voted for acquittal with a white stone and voted voted for a conviction with a black stone. What he is essentially saying here is, regardless of what cultural reference he is referring to, what he's saying is that this manna and this stone is a blessing for those who are in Christ. That you will receive this not based off your effort, but based off what Christ has done for you if you repent and turn and follow Him. And those that do. Will we were given a new name. Now for us, this might not mean much because in our culture today, names are kind of more descriptions. They often don't have kind of a deep meaning to them. For most of human history, uh, names that were given to people or even places often had a deep and significant meaning. What he's essentially saying is that you will receive the blessing of God. You will receive a new name and you will go enter into God's kingdom if you repent and turn and follow him. And So that being said, if I could kind of wrap this up in a main idea of what this means for us today as we read this letter, here's what I think I would want us to know. That repentance changes our practice. Repentance is significant because this is not just a, I'm sorry, I'm just going to try not to do it again, but true repentance changes our practice, right? For example, I have since repented to Christina for buying a vegetable medley, which means I have no, I've never again bought her another vegetable medley, right? I have admitted my, my uh, wrongdoing and I have truly repented because I have no longer done that again, right? True repentance starts with our heart, but impacts our actions. This is not to say that we're going to be perfect, but repentance is not, I'm sorry, I'm just going to try to self-will myself not to do this again until the next time and then I'll apologize again. Repentance means I recognize the errors of my way and I'm to take practical steps to change my direction so that I will not be continuing in this practice. What's happening to the church in Pergamum is that they were faithful and they were commended for it, but they still had issues that they needed to deal with. They still had things that they need to repent of. Otherwise, it would overtake even their faithfulness and everything else that they are doing. And so as I close, the question for us this morning is this. What things have you and I in our lives excused that we need to repent of? What are perhaps some smaller sins or some ongoing uh, weaknesses or issues that we are facing that we kind of excuse because we say, well, you know what, at the end of the day, I do love God, and I am trying to be a good person, and I am trying to honor God. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has their own issues, and so I'll just kind of keep this under wraps, or I'll kind of indulge in my own guilty pleasures every once in a while, but it's okay because God will forgive me. And although God does forgive us and does give us grace, if we have truly repented, we will not look at these issues of our life with a sense of excusal, but a sense of what can I do to proactively repent and change my practice, not so God will love me more, not so I can say, look how much of a great person I am, but because we've truly been heartbroken by the areas and ways that we dishonor God and dishonor people. So, for example, one of the things in our current cultural moment that we see with all the racial injustices that are coming to light in some ways more than ever before, what does it look like for those of us that may be uh, white to say, what are the ways that I have maybe implicitly, explicitly, but maybe what are the times that implicitly that I have uh, maybe continued or promoted racism or systematic injustice, not because I meant to, because I didn't know any better. So what does it look like to repent, to learn more about the plight, the difficulties that many of our uh, black brothers and sisters are going through in this country to say, I'm going to come alongside you and do my part to make sure that everybody is equally treated and loved and respected. What does it look like to repent? What does it look like for the sins in my life, the things that I am facing, to not just say, I'm sorry, and I'll try not to do it again, but actually repent, because repentance, true repentance— changes our practice because following Jesus is the invitation to become more like him, to become more loving and gracious and kind in the same manner that he has been to us. Repentance, true repentance, changes our practice. And Jesus' invitation is to come and to follow him and allow him to do things in our lives that we could have never done on our own without true repentance of going to God and maybe those in our life to say, here are my issues. Help me change for the good of others and for the good of my relationship with Christ. Repentance changes our practice. Let's pray. God, you are good and gracious. And one of the encouragements to me as we read all of these issues that these churches are facing and all the issues in our life, is that your call is always the same, that you are calling and inviting us to repent. You're not saying do X, Y, and Z, or give this amount of money or pray this much, and then maybe you'll forgive us. You say, no, no, right where you are, repent and turn to me. Give your, your weaknesses, your struggles, your issues. Be honest with them and give them to me, and we will have grace and mercy, forgiveness right there. So, my prayer, God, is that we would be a people, that we would be a church, and that we would be individuals who repent, that don't try to excuse our sin, that don't try to cover up our sin, that don't try to explain away the areas that we know we have fallen short of your standard. And would you give us the power through the, through the empowering of your spirit to repent? to change our ways, to receive the grace that you have for us and to walk into your power and not into our self-will and self-determination that so often leaves us into trouble and leads us to places that we don't want to go. God, would you make us a people of repentance? Would you help us be a light in the darkness? And would you give us the grace and wisdom and mercy of loving others around us well to help as many people as possible see and experience you. Thank you for being a God that accepts all of us right where we are if we will simply repent. May we do that this morning May we follow you more faithfully and may we be a part of helping as many people as possible see the grace that you have bestowed upon us as we ask that you would also share it with others. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for being a God that forgives us every time we turn to you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.